you ask for it. This is Illiterate. This week we're covering Pachinko. My name is Evan. I just checked out the Apple Plus series. My name is Taylor, and I looked into international gambling statistics. Ooh, here we go. There's so much to get into. There's so much to explain. This story is massive. Um, <laughs> Pachinko is on Apple Plus right now. This was an episode suggested by one of our listeners, and this is an incredible suggestion, and we thought, why not? Uh, we have seen it creep into a few lists of the best stuff on right now. So, oh, man. Um, and there's already Emmys talk, and yeah. Pachinko is based on a New York Times bestseller, and it is a massive story, uh, a parallel story, uh, in the 1920s and then the late 1980s, centering around the grandmother of a family who, gosh. That I, so, <laughs> yeah, basically what it ends up being in the briefest, it's multi-generational, over 80 years, Sunja is the main lady, and she lives in Japanese-occupied Korea, and then emigrates to Japan, and the family ends up becoming wealthy in the 80s by running pachinko parlors, but it's her, her kids, the grandkids, it's everybody here, there, it's and in generational, between. It's generational, it's political, it's cultural, <laughs> historical. it's huge. It is, <laughs> it is so much bigger than anything I thought I was getting into. I had no idea, and it is, it is expensive. It's expensive looking. <laughs> I was pretty blown away, uh, and I'm really excited that this is starting to get a lot of talk. Everything of what was happening in Korea and Japan uh, at the time. So let's 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 dive right in. I mean, yeah. what in the world? Let's start. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> the title even is because <laughs> even off the bat, I think a lot of people are confused about that. Right, pachinko is a Japanese gambling game. The closest thing, not in terms of the mechanics of it, but just like slot machines, just like really yeah. flashy, quick, you know, it's not six rounds of poker. It's right. a machine game kind of thing. And huge, huge adult, of course, also it's not for kids. See, the first um, thing we thought was Plinko, like on uh, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> prices that price is right or like, yeah, I it's close remember. to that. Yeah. So it's <laughs> it's a game where there's these little silver balls. It's almost like pinball standing upright. The balls shoot up and then go down, and wherever they land, you you get more balls depending, and you can keep playing. This I did not realize is so huge in Japan, two hundred billion dollars annually, which would be Whoa. two times the export revenues of the Japanese auto industry. Oh my god! So that's Toyota, Nissan, Honda. Oh my god! Yeah. And then, of course, gambling-wise, it's more gambling revenue than Las Vegas, Macau, and Singapore combined. Just oh my god, pachinko! Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> when I started looking into this, I said this is the first thing we have to talk about. My god! Oh my god! So basically, for the Japanese people, one out of seven Japanese adults plays this regularly. It's like wow. manga. If you know, like our yeah, 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 My Hero Academia episode. It's like this is another massive thing. The way that it became so ubiquitous, so gambling for cash is actually illegal in Japan. When I looked into this, I said, how can this okay. be? Okay, I did not know that. Yeah. The biggest thing. So the pachinko balls that you win cannot be exchanged for money because that's gambling and that's illegal. You're getting money to gamble. 
nor right. can they be removed and exchanged somewhere else at another parlor because it's like, well, how did okay. you get this? Oh, I gambled. You're exchanging something for money right. illegal. So it's kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese or like some other thing where you get tokens or tickets. The pachinko bowls that you get, which can number in the thousands in baskets underneath these machines are then traded in for prizes. So you could trade it in for a pen or a whatever. What 99% of people do is trade it in for a quote special prize, which would be some toy that's priced at $400 or whatever the pachinko balls, you know, the actual winnings is of the jackpot. You take that thing out to an off-premises vendor who's independent to the parlor and sell Mm -hmm. that worthless thing to them for the cash value that uh, you obviously won in the pachinko parlor. Interesting. So then those vendors that are technically not affiliated with the parlor sell the thing, the teddy bear or the plastic toy or whatever, back to the parlor with commission, which then creates profit for them without violating the law. This is what happens in the show as well, but you could see how this would be a great vehicle for the Yakuza because of money laundering and (laughs) racketeering how this whole right, convoluted right. three-party system works. It's obviously not as much since the 90s. They have really cracked down on the mob aspect of this, but this is the the legal way that this all gets worked around. Yeah, seems really fraught to manipulation. <laughs> <laughs> seems yeah. really open to just being you know, bent in any which way, but you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's created a lot of issues. So there was a study in 2014, the pathological gambling tendencies in Japanese men is 9% sociologically. In North America, it's only 1.6%. So it is, it does affect the culture and populace a lot more. And if you remember in our Squid Game episode, the creator, Huang Dong-hyuk, he had read that book, Gambling Apocalypse, where there's this cruise ship where you gamble and you die, you know, it sort of inspired him for that. And it's a manga, Japanese, but you could see how that would be a very popular manga, knowing now this aspect culturally, that it's such a huge piece. So yeah, that's the title of the, the novel and the show. And it's because eventually this is what this family, which we'll explain in the historical stuff, like why they would get into this and become successful Mm -hmm. as Koreans in Japan which I don't even know if they get too much into the pachinko side of things straight away in the show. No, no, yeah. no, no. That, all that stuff is is really yet to come. I only yeah. got uh, in, into the first two episodes, so you don't really see much of any of that, except for in the opening. It has a great yeah. title sequence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, no, that all that stuff is to come, but you see, the way that the narrative is set up really quickly, you get this parallel uh, story that shows you like, okay, so it's going to lead to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really interested in that. We've been talking about manga so much because it yeah. kept coming to mind while I was while I was watching it. Uh, I had the present mind thought of going like, man, some of these shots, some of the cutting in here, the way <laughs> thought is expressed feels like all the anime I've been watching the last year. Uh, in particular, it really brought to mind a filmmaker um, that I've fallen in love with. I'm going to butcher the name, but Mikado uh, Shinkai. Uh, he recently did a movie called Weathering With You and then one very famous Your Name before yeah. that. Uh, and they have these beautiful, re- really empathetic 
quiet narratives that have these genre twists on them where they're both dealing with parallel timelines that mm-hmm. somehow intersect. They're a little bit more genre than the Pachinko. Pachinko is definitely a historical real thing. Yeah. Um, but in the way that it was telling these two parallel timelines, I instantly was brought back to his films, the sensibilities of his uh, of his anime films, very, uh, very this quietness that is just it is so much more prevalent in uh, in Eastern uh, yeah. media. But uh, this is I felt like if I was going to see a Shinkai movie adapted, I would want to see it done by this director. Right. <laughs> yeah. One of the things since you had mentioned kind of the some of the stylistic stuff that's different the the book because this is not based on a manga like you're saying it is based i was going to ask massive, if it yeah, yeah if it was a novel but i was going to ask if there were any other adaptations before we've gotten here no no this is the first one for this particular book and the big difference is that the book unfolds chronologically it does not jump around oh. Oh, oh, so that's so a it's epic. Oh, hats yeah. off to the film. Yeah, no, hats off yeah. to the to the filmmakers behind the series, man, because it is presented in such a way where I was a, I was certain. I mean, it was almost without saying zeitgeist level. Like, obviously, that's how the book is, is set up. So <laughs> it's that, framed to what, compare. No, oh my yeah. god, what they the, bring into it within the first few moments, then what they ha- the work they have done to present the the narrative, the way that the story will be told to you. Uh, the work they have done is immense. Mm. I'm, that's incredible. You're compounding my appreciation for it immediately. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, I skimmed the book a little bit and got a, a flavor for it and whatnot. But it, even at the beginning, it starts with Sunja's father's childhood. Like it goes even before. Wow! Her. Wow! It's, it's yeah. Just to set things up, and then it just goes chronologically, mm-hmm. and certain characters, you know, die or other things happen, and it it just follows straight through. So obviously, if it's paralleling this more modern timeline with the grandson, that takes up more real estate than the actual book. Because right. it's, from what I can yeah. tell right here, the purview of the narrative centers around the grandson and the grandmother. And then yeah. when we go back to that's in the in 1989. And when we go back to the 20s, we're at the grandmother at around, I would say, six to eight. I don't know if it's explicitly right, said, right, yeah, but yeah. she's a, a small child. Yeah. And so that that point of view is pretty evident getting like, OK, so we're going to have to understand how what the grandmother has been through to lead her up to this point. The whole crux of this is that the grandson lives in New York as a successful businessman, and he's coming home to try to convince her to sell family property. Yeah. It, and she's in Japan. Correct? Yes, he's going back. Yeah. He's going back home to Japan. He's actually uh, Korean, but they mm-hmm. have grown up in Japan. Yeah. That made me think about like who has written this massive epic tale just straight through. I wouldn't think it would be a 94-year-old woman who had lived this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. who uh yeah, it like you said New York Times best-selling finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction came out in 2017 was immediately bidded on and bought by Apple and then took 4 years to make. But the mm. the writer of the book Min Jin Lee She came to the U.S. when she was seven from South Korea and grew up in New York City. Okay. Went to to school for history, became a corporate lawyer for a second, quit to write in 1995, and that's what she's been doing ever since. She wrote a first novel that was rejected everywhere, and then in 1996 started this novel called Motherland, which involves this Korean-Japanese intermingling and the history behind that worked on this motherland novel for seven years 
It was terrible. She said she just gave it up. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Switched to a different novel, which then became the first novel that she actually got published in 2007 called Free Food for Millionaires, which now I mm. think is also being developed for something. Got tons of awards, NPR, Times of London, New York Times Editor's Choice. It's about a young Korean woman in New York City, so more her okay, lived yeah, experience yeah, yeah. and the family and cultural situations involved in that. Once this novel got published, her husband got a job in Tokyo. So she moved there and lived there for four years. This is when she started talking to people there, Korean people living in Japan, rethinking this motherland idea, because with her interviewing and knowing more people, she saw completely differently how people actually were. It wasn't this singularly biased interpretation. It's like, yeah. They don't see themselves as historical victims. They're ordinary people caught in history. Thus, now you can even see the pachinko idea of the ball just going down in a re- like. Right. Eventually, now after a long time of working on this, it comes out in 2017, the book, and is- And it takes off like a rocket. Revered, yeah. <laughs> I love the first line of the book, which is, quote, history has failed us, but no matter- and then it just goes into the story. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That reminds me. And now a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what, so the interesting part of it is like she it's an omniscient narrator because she really likes the old 19th century fiction like Charles Dickens and the, like kind of like we had when we covered the Goldfinch a million years ago. This I long, you, yeah. sweeping, massive third person point of view that knows Gosh, everything. Yeah. And she says she identifies with minor characters. So it's like they're all minor characters going mm-hmm. through. But as far as getting all of this, she majored in history in college and she lived in Tokyo for a while. But during that time as well, she worked straight from interviews to inform the characters. Like it's a composite of this person mm-hmm. and this person mm-hmm. and this person. She has boxes and boxes and boxes of notes on historical events and people. I saw in an interview, she was like, with every single page, I could have had footnotes for either the historical references or interviews that I did, which is pretty cool. I would almost want to read a book version that she has the little subscript numbers (laughs) and the references to all the stuff that she pulled from. Well, I bet, you know, I bet after watching the show, it would, if somebody was really into it, that going back and then getting into the novel or vice versa, reading mm-hmm. the novel and then watching the show, they, I, I'm wondering, we'll see, you know, it's to be discovered how much might be uh, changed. Yeah. It seems as if they might really complement each other as an, as an expansion in both directions where the way that the, that the story is being presented and told in the show mm-hmm. is so different than sitting down and reading it beginning to end that beginning to end is going to have so much more that never even makes it into the show. But the way yeah. that the show is told is so effective. It's so energetic and beautiful and it, it compounds it with it packs it with so much emotion that you might otherwise not get on the page between pages or lines yeah it feels like these things really might be an awesome companion piece to each other does not always work that way and sometimes it frustrates you if you're trying to do that with things (laughs) that just like that wasn't the the point but it sounds like there might be a lot here that could uh, compound this experience between the two mediums yeah. Well, so the person responsible, Sue Hugh, is the creator of the show. Four years to make the project, six months just to cast the actors, because this is this worldwide search. Wow. Um, yeah. And like you're saying, in terms of the 
tone and the complimenting. She had said she read through the book and wanted the dialogue between generations to be more apparent and realizing that was the through line for her as a creator that hit her the most. Hence Mm -hmm. the time jumps. Mm -hmm. Also because she didn't want it to be a Korean version of masterpiece theater, this period piece thing. And if that's all it is for the first, you know, six yeah. and nine, you know, it's like people are going to dip out. Hey, or, that's smart. That's that. Now you're, now you're talking about what's the difference between the book and the TV show. That's how you sell a TV show. That's how you get people <laughs> excited and be like, it's the same story. But the way we tell it when you're watching a show versus reading the book is completely different. Yeah. Um, she, that, that's, a, that's an incredible on point decisions. Like you are interested in these themes. Well, what, what helps you compound those scenes? Well, let's cut against the two actions. You're going to see mm-hmm. something set up in one timeline. Now you're going to see it completely answered in the next one. We're going to jump back decades. Yeah. Um, so th- there's n- you don't miss. It's not like you miss what's going on between the two scenes. It's so abrupt and it's so it's it's not. I wouldn't say it's fast, but it's mm-hmm. not blissfully waiting. You're not going to miss the point. It's very, very concisely directed to the point where it's like, I'm I'm like need to go look up a piece of food that they were making because like the food is important during it and it looked delicious. But it's yeah. again, one of those anime things that seeped into it. Um, but, yeah. But like so, the way that it is comprised, that, that it is shot is so intentful. Um, you mm-hmm. won't even in the most no words, you'll get that you it's so on its face, obvious. And I'm saying that because the, I think the director has done an incredible job uh, of telling you exactly what the point between the two scenes, between the decades are. Yeah. Suhu, the showrunner, she was also the head writer. There's some other writers, but she was primarily. And, you know, this is also hard to remember because she had started pitching this in 2017 to get it developed before the international multilingual precedent of Minari, Squid Game, Parasite. So it's like, who will buy a mm-hmm, show in mm-hmm. three languages filmed internationally over two thirds of the dialogue is in Korean or Japanese. Cause she's like, the book is written in English, but we can't, if we're going to show the cultural tension between <laughs> Korean and Japanese, they can't all be speaking English. We have to feel the difference in the languages. Something that really struck me uh, because it wasn't explained to me. I don't, I've never really come across it. And then it, it clicked very quickly and it, it really exemplified what you were just talking about Mm -hmm. is that it is three languages and that while you're in the subtitles, these people might be using one language and the other intermittently. They might completely switch out in the same sentence. And I had never seen that communicated in subtitles before. So I'm, I'm looking at it and it's yellow and suddenly one word is blue and the rest is yellow. I'm like, wait, whoa, what? And it's because I don't, I don't speak either language. I'm not hearing what, you know, where it changed. And so it takes me a second. Eventually I realize uh, when uh, he goes back to Japan and when certain characters are talking to him, blue is Japanese. And then I'm starting to understand that is that is really exemplifying the thematics there about the fighting between these two cultures. Yeah. Uh, The tension uh, present in all of these scenes. It's all Mm -hmm. littered with this idea and it seeps down into the, into the subtitles. I had never seen that. (laughs) Well, you can imagine the hellacious process of both pitching and then producing and making this because it, it, in a strange way, ties to our CODA episode talking about subtitles and mm-hmm. translation and whatnot because Su Hu had to translate 
not her herself, but get, you know, how are we going to translate these yeah. scripts into Japanese and Korean and the dialects that we want, depending on where they are oh and the gosh. historical yeah. dialects yeah. for when they're speaking in the 1920s. Like it's, it's a lot of language stuff going on in this. So that was a bunch of work in terms of getting it made. Bunch of work and it's presented unflinchingly. It's so confident and it's so yeah. obviously part of the mission there. Once you start thinking, you know, when I'm doing the work, like what's going on blue, yellow, all <laughs> of it comes together all at once. I'm like, Oh my God, that's kind of like the whole point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you had talked about expensive budget, similar to the crown 13 million per episode. So it looks a, it. It's a lot. It's, it's strikingly beautiful for something I really, I really had no idea what we were walking into. I'm kind of expecting a cheaper show, and it's like it is an outright epic. Yeah, yeah, and because uh, part of it is like bridging the types of content, the precedent of K dramas, and getting those people involved. Lee Min Ho, one of the main actors, is a huge K drama star. Just something that sort of encapsulated the experience for the creatives involved so they because of filming during covid they couldn't really film it all in japan filmed some in korea but they filmed a lot in vancouver rebuilding everything as if mm -hmm. it was a period fish market set so wow. again a ton of work but like people still found out that lee min ho was in vancouver filming this thing and so the creators said 50 people found out people are screaming off on the sidelines while they're trying to film and oh just also God. in Canada all types of fans and they're like oh this is what we wanted is for this to be not just somebody who wants to see right. a period Korean drama but look at the people screaming for this guy in Vancouver for this <laughs> it's not I, a matter I, of have we achieved this it's like we already did before <laughs> before we even got it that people would be interested in this and yeah. what a great decision to have the Minari grandmother, Young Yo mm -hmm. Jung, uh, as the grandmother in the in the eighty nine timeline. I mean, that's yeah, a, that's an I mean, no better, no better, who better? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, if you if you saw Minari and you went, who who is this lady? I want more of her? Bam, bam we got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had talked about the food, and it was curious because I looked into that too because it's huge both from a historical standpoint and just a cultural standpoint, definitely connects yeah. uh, yes. Korean people and as a family. So the props person, Ellen Frund, who had worked on a bunch of stuff, I had just seen Mad Men thrown out there as an example. She oh, yeah. went and worked and learned from Soojin Kim at Seoul's Food and Culture Academy in Korea. And kind of interesting, like not just the food and the techniques and the the wares that were used being period appropriate, but also like an Asian pear now is valued for its size. And she said it was the same problem mm. in Mad Men because apples in the 1960s do not look the same mm, as apples now. Cool. So it was like the proportions of the food, what they looked like, like trimming down the cabbages for the kimchi or trying to find the smallest <laughs> cabbages that were grown because they just weren't the same shape or size. If or anybody anything. out there has seen a Miyazaki film, you know, Spirited uh -huh. Away, you know, that classic idea, this anime food and the way it's presented, the cultural elements of the way it's presented. Yeah. Uh, that, it, I have never seen it so successfully done on film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, seriously, uh, it, it is such a, a quiet, intimate thing, nonverbal, that's really cluing you into the, mm -hmm. this, 
these people, these characters, these cultures. Uh, and it's something I only see out of the East. I have never seen, I have never seen a really touching montage of somebody like making a baked potato. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I, Slapping together a hamburger. Yeah. No, yeah. you know, like I, I, I struggled. The closest thing I get to like what that achieves is like maybe, uh, in, uh, Django Unchained, there's a great, uh, sequence of a beer being poured at the tap. Uh, you know, th- but it's, yeah. th- those things are just not valued in Western media, the way they are valued and presented in Eastern media. And this yeah. is, it's, it's really great. <laughs> yeah. And then speaking of Eastern media and the creator, Sue Hugh, and what I, I just found, there's a very interesting thing that she did with the creative process of this. And it's called the thousand miles project because she grew up in Maryland and it seemed like a mm-hmm. universe away to do anything related to films. Or she's like, she didn't even know that you could be a screenwriter, any of that kind of stuff as a mm. kid. So she, as a part of the development deal with universal content yeah. that she's working with, she said, you also have to put your money where your mouth is. And so there's this incubator program for Asian and Pacific Islander stories. Like I said, it's called the thousand miles project. Cause she's like, it felt like a thousand, you know, it's like, it shouldn't be a thousand miles away to have this happen. Right. So 20 writers. And then out of those three, we'll get a 24 week development process for pilots. I just think it's so cool that it's like, yeah, here's yeah. somebody who's like, yeah, I yeah, want yeah. an easier path than I had tons of film school debt, entry level jobs. Now somebody who is paying millions of dollars to make something also put money into people to continue to make these things like this. Right. So I'll post a link to that as well. But um, that's awesome. Something that this gets just briefly compared to is K-dramas. And we had mentioned it already. And it's kind of like, was this that? I would say yes and no. It's sort of a Hollywood version. And that's why it's gotten buzz. Because right. I mean, you're also going to like see some actors that you might recognize, like uh, <laughs> right. like there's an actor from It's Almost Sunny in Philadelphia in it as the American guy, right? Jimmy Simpson. So it's not like, you know, the, again, it's three languages. English is there. It, there are sequences of it that are fully in English. It is so much more than just this or that. And, and what an yeah. amazing story that covers all of this, all of this time, all of all of these cultures, <laughs> uh, and yeah. it really has something to say about well, like, well, what is our responsibility to each other, and like, well, I, I don't know, I, I I'm really interested in 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 the thematics that it's laying down. I don't know exactly where the whole thing is going to end up, but I'm interested yeah. in seeing the pull of the West and the East and then the infighting of the East from the grandmother's point of view. And now you have the grandson coming in with Western ideals and doesn't Mm -hmm. understand what they have been through. It's a lot going on. And I am so thankful that something like this has gotten this type of money, this type of talent and this type of attention out there. Uh, if if this is sounding like something not for, you know, like a K-drama, like we're talking too much about <laughs> anime. I don't like anime. Again, like yeah. Jimmy Simpson from All, Always Sunny is in it. <laughs> so. Right. The very small, because I had seen of the 637 cast members in this, 95% are Asian. It is a lot of new people as well, or people that you don't know. But like you're saying, as far as the, the yeah, the K-drama situation, this is... Uh, 
a Hollywood like they pull, production. They're pulling yeah. the they're pulling the best of the best. I mean, the, again, like they can't go to they can't go to location in a different country without people <laughs> screaming. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's 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 really it is top of the top of the best. It's the best type of project to be able to pull from those areas, uh, so it can actually transcend labels like K drama. Yeah, I will say because with K drama now it it has changed quite a bit, and I won't get into too much. It, sure, go to our sure. Squid I mean, Game episode. Part of it you, is yeah. breaking down. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Squid Game episode we covered somewhat of the basics of it, but just in terms of something similar to this, it's like K drama does very much have a whole subgenre of the historical type drama, and mm-hmm. obviously this is a huge part of Korean history. So this particular time period from 1910 to 1945 is going to be involved in some of these historical stories. <laughs> there is Eyes of Dawn was based on a 10 volume novel spans from when this is happening, colonization, World War II, the Korean War, 270 actors, 21,000 extras. Whoa. This came out in ni- 91 and really cemented the new wave of Korean drama. But it's like, oh that God. was one of the first and biggest ones. And then there has oh been God. a lot in Korea about Korea, but that's sort of what makes this different is it's on Apple Plus, <laughs> you know, for us yeah. buffoons who don't, you know, subscribe to K-drama. Right. Like um, the Minari grandmother is again in her own right, massive star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the last thing to kind of go through is just very broad strokes w- since we've been skirting around it. What the heck is this even talking about? We're talking about 80 years of a family and this and that, but kind of just in general, the Korean diaspora, Korean Japanese relations, the history of that. I looked into it a little yeah. bit just to for our audience and Evan to get a like yeah. and for me to get a glance <laughs> a, a glancing blow on Oh so you don't need it Taylor? Is. No, well, I desperately need it. <laughs> we um, all need it. Yeah. So the word that is used and probably in the show as well, Jai Nichi is the foreign mm-hmm. residence of Japan. That's literally what mm-hmm. it means, which makes no sense because these are Korean people who they're not technically foreign, but that's then right. the misperceptions and the strife that comes from it. And so Koreans are the second largest minority group in Japan. And this terminology refers to the Koreans who came to Japan before 1945 and their descendants who faced discrimination following World War II, limited jobs. And this is how they came to own 80% of all the pachinko parlors in Japan is because this was perceived as a lowly, dirty job. And even now, people, there, there is discrimination or eyes of concern towards people involved in this. Jeez. So that's kind of where that's that that's the some of the history. But yeah, the, Japan and this is the big thing, occupied Korea from 1910 to 1945. So that was there was no yeah, it's <laughs> Korean no, government. It's it was no, a, uh, yeah. it's no surprise what side they're on come 1940. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> come World War II. Oh god. And I this, had, I mean yeah. I really just hadn't considered how imperialistic they really were aspiring yeah. to be. I really really did not have quite the, the biggest uh, grasp on that. This is yeah. this is bizarre. And so 1910 Korea gets annexed by the Japanese Empire without consent of the Korean Emperor. 8% of the farmland in Korea was under Japanese control around this time and just for some context by 1932 52% of the farmland was under Japanese wow. control. Oh, but wow. the actual Japanese population in Korea was less than 3% in 
So not as many Japanese gotcha. going to okay. Korea, but just unauthorized rule over things. So a lot of stuff. Korean currency was abolished. They're saying you're going to use this, you know, just slowly whittling away at the culture. In 1911, the royal palace, Gyeongbokgung, was demolished. This thing was built in 1395. Oh my God. Huge, I mean, 500 buildings. The restoration of this, which was crazy to me, didn't even start until the 90s. So they started Whoa. rebuilding and, and replacing and, and taking down what was the Japanese governmental buildings that were put in its place. And so, what I could tell by 2009, 40% was restored. Wow. It's now a cultural touchstone again. Um, wow. March 1st. Is a in 1919 is a big moment because the emperor previously had died. There were rumors of poisoning, so th this is now the start of these what was then perceived as illegal independence rallies, and so massacre there, continued suppression of culture, forced to worship oh at Shinto shrines, you know, removing the religious aspects of it, and then. In terms of education, in the late 30s, when the war is in overdrive, this Korean language was actually banned. So like teaching Whoa. and speaking Korean is prohibited in Korea. Oh my God. And I'm sure they'll get into some of this in the show in the later yeah. episodes. But like there was this, and this is the craziest thing that I learned from all this, the policy to change to Japanese names if you lived in Korea. So- in 1940, this was when this was instituted, and uh, by August, 80% of Korean people had changed their names to a Japanese surname, Oh my God. which is crazy. It's, it's a cultural erasure. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, 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 you know, people be like, well, why would you do that? And it's like, if you didn't, you can't enroll in school. You're refused yeah. government service. You're excluded from rations and supplies. This is in the middle of a world war. So yeah, just now that the w war has picked up in 41, there is a counterforce, the KLA Korean Liberation Army, which participated on the allied side. But as far as Japan is concerned, five and a half million Koreans were conscripted for Japan's war effort and oh. 670,000 taken to Japan for civilian labor. So then that's a lot of where you get this, the terminology and the native Koreans oh who then are living God, in dude. Japan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. This is, uh, this, I it's had a lot no, of history. I had, well, I mean, I just had no idea how Germany they wanted to be. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. it, they really were on the same track. Yeah, <laughs> they were all. Oh God, uh, yeah. I think uh, you know the history. History teaching in this country, there's certainly a lot that could be done to improve it. But one thing is that, oh, good Lord, there should be more focus on the Eastern, yeah, definitely <laughs> Eastern theater and what what the impacts really were culturally around Japan in the East, because we we talk obviously. Poland, nineteen thirty nine, but like I, I've really yeah. not understood how much pressure, <laughs> how much pressure was put on the East all around Japan because of yeah. what was happening in World War Two. Yeah, and it, it did, 
you know, we have certain portions of that history. So for example, like I said, the hundreds of thousands of men conscripted into the war effort in Japan, 70,000 of the victims in the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were Koreans that were working in military establishments or just being civilians there as well as now on the, that's yeah. again because y- you say they're they're brought to work that's concentration camps no <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah i mean there's yeah, some that, movement that's a there, nice but it's way like, of saying yeah right you right. have to help in the right. war effort yeah and then on the women's side this is horrible Two hundred thousand women forced into sexual slavery for japanese soldiers the term comfort women that's where that term comes um, from but this is all Korean women who are still seeking reparations for all of this. Right. So yeah, 45, the war ends, Japanese rule ends, and then immediately you have the US on the southern side of the peninsula and the Soviet pressure on the north, Korean War. Oh, what do you want, grandson? Oh, sell our sacred family land? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just just to go back to like this is there's so much that gets these people up to the point that we find them in 1989. This mm-hmm. is all, all of this cultural stuff is all compounding to the point where, okay, now grandson is off. He's living the life in America. He's so disconnected from yeah. all of that, which is the problem. That's why this works for an American audience, because this is really the, the problem here is the grandson coming back with these Western ideals washed of the history in the mm-hmm. East and not understanding why he can't bridge the gap here. Why he can't, he make her move it. And then getting into this history. Well, that, that is the work of the show really is trying to help un- get behind. Like, well, yeah. why would this woman not move on this? Well, when you've been through as much as she has. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's Min Jin Lee, the writer of the novel was saying when she was researching and, talking to people in Japan and whatnot. She had just time and time again, it's like, why are you centering it on this person? She's like, there are, everybody that I talked to talked about some matriarch in the family, some grandmother who had sacrificed so much and is still out on the street in some food stall on her feet selling stuff. Also translates in a way globally, universally, most people do have some maternal figure who keeps it together and ha- you have you cannot imagine the amount that they sacrificed for a future right. generation that they maybe would never see. Yeah, just when you get when you start thinking about who this character is for her to end up in 1989 and be who she is to be asking what the grandson is asking of her is is to negate a lot of history. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a very 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 beautiful place to hang the crux of a show in your first episode um yeah because (laughs) there's so much to get into there god man this is so much bigger than i ever (laughs) ever imagined i thought i was good you know i thought this was going to be a gambling episode you know what i mean you know (laughs) (laughs) right yeah no 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 well i am really 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 glad that an audience member suggested this because oh, yeah? this is exactly the type of thing that deserves a little bit of context, deserves a little bit of required reading, a little bit extra 
And again, like we said at the top of the show, we're seeing it creep into some of the best on right now. That was more than enough uh, clearance for us to <laughs> to get into <laughs> it because we hadn't heard about it before the suggestion. So uh, hats off to the listener that sent that in. Thank you so much. And again, anybody out there listening, if you are into the show, let us know what you are reading. Let us know what you are watching. What are you excited for coming out? What are you all about? We want to be all about it too. And we want to <laughs> help spread the word. So let us know. You never know when we'll do an episode all about that thing at illiterate pod on instagram also please 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 give us a rating give us a like give us a heart if you want to help us out that's as simple as it gets <laughs> and then the other way is spread the word tell a friend if there's an episode that you think they would love or they said well you know i was thinking of watching that show give them that episode or or that one Ooh, i don't like that mm, looks like it's this you might know better you might know better send them our show maybe we can change their minds together we thank you for sticking with us it means the world and we will catch you next week see you then